Open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. You've probably all heard the joke about how short he was. Nehi. Uh, I guess some of you hadn't heard that joke. And now I'm sorry that I shared it with you because it has done nothing to help you. You should have, if, uh, if we were able to get it to you, uh, a map. Um, if, 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 if you don't have one, maybe somebody can help. Does everybody have one? I want you to be able to look at this. All right. So, um, I tried to, I know it's hard to read. Um, anybody who wants to read it, it's actually the Bible, it's actually the map that's in my Bible here. So I will, you can come and read mine when the message is over for only a nominal fee. That was a joke. You guys are... All right. We're having a great time already, I can tell. So, I, I want you to, to go with me first. And you can... We're, we're coming right back to Nehemiah, but I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians. Interesting how... Paul in dealing with another one of the issues there shares some things that I think are kind of connected to what we're going to be talking about. Um, I'll read to you from well, let's see, from verse 9. He's he's dealing with divisions, and that's kind of how he and he names some things and gives a couple sentences. I'm not going to read all that. You can read it if later if you're interested. It says, verse nine: For we are God's fellow workers; you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul refers refers to himself here as a master builder and... um, a skilled master builder, or some instances it says wise master builder, and that God's people, specifically those people there in Corinth, were the building. Now earlier, um, he talked about uh, planting and husbandry, and that's why he says you're God's field. And so he he transitions from that little... um, illustrative picture to the one of a builder and he moves into being to a building but he was building the Lord was helping him build a building for God that was built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and that building of God was made up of people and we'll look at that a little bit more. So go back with me to the book of Nehemiah. 
Let me just quickly give you by review as we talk about the master builder today. That's what our title is. Give you a little bit of review. Remember we mentioned that in the olden days, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. And Ezra focused on rebuilding the temple area. And Nehemiah is is coming back to build the city walls. Um, the big picture here, historically, and we're going to see some other aspects of it, but the big picture here historically is that these are important steps to the reestablishing of the people of God in the place of God so that in the generations to come, we would see the ultimate presentation of the Lamb of God. That when Jesus came, He would come to Jerusalem. It was all a part of prophecy. It was all a part of God's plan from the beginning. And, and this was part of, those, part of that steps. Um, further let me say this further the the care for the temple which which Ezra and Nehemiah set out Nehemiah talks about how he he did a lot of it here as we get toward the end of this book the care for the temple and the consecration and the holiness of the priests point to the perfection of Jesus Christ. It points toward making that one. Jesus, <laughs> um, and I think we mentioned this last week, Jesus at, at one point confronts his critics and says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I remember that. And they all looked at him and said, you're crazy. It took 40 years to build this. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? And then we have this little paraphrase written by the apostle after, you know, the apostle was just as puzzled as everybody else. But uh, we get the idea that later the apostle came to understand he was, and wrote in there, he was, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So this points to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to talk to you about some practical stuff here. And I'm actually not going to get way into the weeds of this. I started doing this. I got like into four chapters. And I had seven points and some sub-points. And I said, there's no way I can do this whole book in one week. So we're going to, we're going to come back to this. I've heard lots of sermons on Nehemiah that got really into the weeds of what Nehemiah did. And there are some things there that there are some good things to learn. There are things about how to lead people. There are things about how to make decisions. Um, I suppose if you really looked into it, there's even aspects of uh, military and and tactical issues because Nehemiah dealt with those things too. Um, Actually, I want to do this in two weeks because I can't wait to next week to read about how Nehemiah pulled out their hair. Oh, that's so much fun. Okay? So is that in there? Oh, yeah. It's in there. And we're going to talk about it um, because there's some things we need to be saying. There's some things about that that apply to our culture today, and we'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. So 
the big picture. I don't want this. I don't want you to forget the big picture. And we're going to look at some of this. We're not going to get way into the weeds, but we are going to kind of skim over this. Now, I wrote down um, seven things that caused all this to happen, and um, I'm, I'm going to go over some of them quickly, and. Um, Others will spend a little bit more time on. You fill in, you know, as the Holy Spirit helps you fill it in. So the first thing was, there was godly care. Maybe a better way to phrase that is that there was a concern that came from God. That's in chapter 1, verse 4. He asked, in the earlier verses, his brother, by the way, uh, Hanani was his brother, who had just come back, and he said, what's going on? And And he heard And in verse 4 it says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Then it goes on and records his prayer. And I'm not going to read all that. I just want to kind of give you enough to get get the point. His heart and his mind were focused on God's people and the place where God had placed them. And when he found out how terrible things were there, his heart was broken because he cared. Um, it's easy for us to care about the wrong things and maybe care too much for the wrong things. Um, It's also, and and that's not right, it's also wrong for us to not care about the things that are important. And um, sometimes there are foolish arguments because it's really arguments about things that that people care deeply about that aren't very important. Okay? And I think what's sadder is when there's no argument, when there are things that people should care deeply about and they don't care. So things just slide along. And again, I said I wasn't going to take a lot of time on this, but it it keeps getting bigger in my mouth. Um, one of these days we may we may revisit Francis Schaeffer's um, dynamic and seminal presentation, How Should We Then Live? Where he goes down through the history of, of modern civilization and in a he did this in the late sixties, early seventies, and he he in a prophetic way paints a picture of where we are and where we're going. And he said, at the end of this time, when things are deconstructed, it will be because most men's main goal is personal peace and affluence. In other words, if I'm cared for and left alone. And um, say, well... What's, what are you talking about? That, basically, that means I don't care about anything else. And unfortunately, I see people who are supposed to be, who, who are trying to express, listen carefully to this little nuance, who are trying to express a politically conservative viewpoint. And one of the things they will frequently say is, I just want to be, what? Left alone. Personal peace. And one of the reasons is because down through the years, 
our our churches have kind of co-opted worldly desires and and we think we think that ease and lack of strife and lack of struggle is what God has for us when in fact the Lord has called us to himself to fight his battle here on earth and has put us into a state of internal and external war not necessarily with flesh and blood. We know Paul talks about this. He said our weapons are not carnal. So we're not necessarily talking about you know external fists and blood and swords and guns. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a war where we every day get up and take ourselves to a cross to be crucified and where we fight against a world that wants to shove on us a lot of things that we should not have. That's number one. And that was only one line. (laughs) All right. Number two. The God-driven need and calling to do something. And it's important that it be a God-driven need and calling to do something. And I already read verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before God of heaven. Verse 11. Um, says this, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And that man was the king. And he's actually praying, Lord, I've got this plan. i got this idea. Lord, help me get it done. Chapter 2, verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my, Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves... And I don't want to get down in too, too deep into the weeds here, but he was appealing. The king understood that. The king may not understand worshiping uh, before a, a mercy seat, but he would understand the place of his father's graves. My father's graves lies in ruin, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah to the seat of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And then the king asked him how long, I'm going to quit reading there. The king said how long, and he gave him leave, and he went to go. And then, and then Nehemiah had courage to ask for some other stuff, too. Good for him. You know, he said, oh, this is, this is going well. And so he pushed his luck, and he got some other stuff. I want to go back to the point here. I read the scripture. I want to go back to the point. There was a God-driven need within him or a calling to do something. He saw what was wrong and he felt he had to fix it. So let me ask you, ask us, ask me, do we see ourselves as vessels to be used in the hand of God? We said, we, 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 said, we have said years ago, that if someone came and said, you know, there's a problem out here in the community, the church needs to do something about it, my first response to that is, what ideas do you have? Or if I'm feeling really peckish, I'll say, what are you going to (laughs) do? Okay? So what that tells everybody is, don't bring up a problem, (laughs) because you're immediately going to be the solution to that problem. But it's easy for us, isn't it, to see problems that other people should fix. And there are problems that other people must fix. 
I mean, we go to doctors because we don't have the skill to do it. We probably take our car to a mechanic because we may not have the skill to do it, etc. And there's all sorts of things like that that you go on, and, and, and that's okay. But there are also things within our hands. And sometimes those things within our hands require us to reach a little bit by faith, put ourselves in a place of uncomfortableness. Nehemiah actually put himself in a, in a place of danger, put ourselves in a place of uncomfortableness, grab a little bit higher than we normally could, and say, God, use me. You bought me for a reason. Now, I want to go back to this. I want to make sure that we understand that it was a God-driven need or calling that it was not just some expression of, the, of, of himself. It wasn't some self just pushing itself out there so that he could feel good about himself. He was doing it because God stirred in his heart. And that was the theme of our message last week. Number three, <clears throat> to get this done, it took prayer and dependence upon God. He couldn't do it. I already read verse 4 twice. He sat down and he wept and he mourned and he prayed. Verse 11, I already read that. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. In other words, give this man mercy for me, Lord, so that he'll understand what I'm I'm wanting to do. Chapter 4. In chapter 4, they're facing opposition. and, And he says, Hero... Hear, O God, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So once again, he prayed. And there's other examples. I just was throwing that out there to get you to see that this is what he's doing. Another one's in verse 9. It says, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. So he not only, he not only prayed, he also did some practical things. And again, I'm not going to get down into all those needs. But there was a dependent, dependence upon God. There was a brokenness. I'm afraid we have so much that it's easy for us to be, to see ourselves as self-sufficient. Um, it, it's, a, it's a mindset. Um, it's, it's a presupposition. It's a way of, of viewing the world. I don't want to say it's a worldview, but it's a way of viewing the world and viewing ourselves in that world and viewing the world around about us that, that we think that if anything comes up, we can handle it. And in a lot of places in our culture, that's actually um, uh, praised and exemplified. In other words, that's a good thing. And in some places, it is a good thing. But realize that it's only true if God is with us. And maybe the reverse of that should be said, it's only true if we are with God. Dependence upon Him. We, um, I, you know, I found myself thinking as I said earlier, and thank God for the gift of the Holy Spirit and His graciousness that I think I said it, um, that when I talked about what I was going to do next week, 
And I hope I said, Lord willing. Because I don't know what's going to happen between now and next week. Um, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. I don't even know what I'm going to say. I have a general idea, but who knows. Number four. Here's the fourth thing it took. It took courage. Chapter 2, verse 2. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much, what? Afraid. He said, Well, you said it took courage, and you read a verse about him being afraid. Well, do you not... I'm, you know... I made a statement and I'm answering my own statement. So it's a straw man argument. You guys probably already know this, but some people don't. Some people think courage is lack of fear. Actually, courage is doing what you do regardless of fear. And he did what he needed to do. He did what he thought God wanted him to do, even though he was afraid. And by the way, what he was doing, as we understand it correctly, was a capital offense. And if you read it like that, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Seeing you're not sick, this is nothing but sadness of heart. If you read it as an accusation, you get a better tone of what was going on. In other words, you're guilty. And that's why in the verses earlier, he said, God, give me mercy in the sight of this man. Give me favor. No, it took courage. Chapter 4, let me read, read, read some more here. And uh, so it's got individual courage, and then, you know, he paid the price. He paid a financial price. He paid a physical price. He paid an emotional price. Um, verse 12, chapter 4. And that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, Ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed my people by their clans with their swords and spears and their bows. And I looked and I rose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. And when our enemies had heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked in construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the other leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. And those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each had labored on the work with one hand and he held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. And the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on a wall far from one another. The place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. Half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be on guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of my guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. So they, they've, when we get to the part here, when you read this and you get to the part where the wall is finally finished and they have this great feast and they honor God and they have a celebration and they do sacrifices and they do the, the, the feast of booths and they think, think about 
the tension that was going on in those days as they were building that wall up and they knew that while that wall was, was low, they were vulnerable and when they got the wall up, they had security. So they got it up and they completed it. it took them 52 days and when they got the wall up, they, they rejoiced because there was a sense of relief. Because day and night, they faced the option of not only working, but of fighting. And they did it 24-7. So they had placed upon them the physical work. They had the constant tension and there was no relief from it. So it took courage. It took a plan. It took observation and a plan. Chapter 2. It says so, and again, I'm, I'm, I apologize for doing this, but for sake of time, he's now in Jerusalem. I, I'm not reading this. You're going to have to read back and put this in context. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Verse 12, And I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me except for the one I rode, and I went by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, and there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And I went up by went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and turned back again and entered the valley gate, so I returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then he goes on and he explains to them. He goes and examines everything and figures out what needs to be done. And then he shares with them his plan. And by the way, if you want to look and see where he went, where he went I think you can read the bold printing. Again, I apologize. This is not the best. I thought about putting it up on the wall, but I realized it would even be harder to see on the wall. But if you want to look here... Uh, at Nehemiah's um, wall here around the city in this city that they rebuilt, you can find these gates and towers that he went to visit. By the way, this city was smaller than the one that Solomon had. And everything was reduced. And the temple was the temple was the same size, but it wasn't in near the grandeur or the greatness. The courtyard was smaller, everything smaller. Just because that's they were captives. And he says in here, as Ezra did, Nehemiah says here, we're here, we're slaves. But he had an observation and he had a plan. The sixth thing, chapter 2, verse 18. I'll read you quickly here. And, and I told them that this is part of the plan. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoke to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. That's a great verse. Let's do this great thing. Well, yeah, we're with you, man. We're going we're gonna to do all this together. Chapter 4, verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So they said, let's do it and let's get done. You know, thank you folks for your patience in dealing with this carpet debacle. Um, it's all going to work out in the end, and, and God's timing is in all of it. It only took me about 36 hours to figure that out. Um, Tuesday was a great day, a day that will live in infamy. 
Um, so, but um, <clears throat> um, what was I saying? Thank you for your for your willingness. I mean, folks came early, and we got everything put back necessarily so we can function. And those of you who were here and and late when last week when we left, you know that <clears throat> there was a a kids table and chairs up here where this communion table is now. They couldn't get you couldn't walk through here. There was just barely room to walk through here. <clears throat> so God bless you for your willingness to work. Number seven, and this is my final point. I figured people would say amen or hooray or something. Or <clears throat> it's like I've told folks, you know, I used to sing, and I, I always knew I was good because when I quit, people clapped. <laughs> Think about that. Was, uh. All right, chapter 7, or number 7, excuse me. Chapter 3. <laughs> I got this backwards. I went through and I marked in my Bible, uh, in, in previous Bibles, I marked it, Differently, but this time I went through and I marked all the places where it says they worked or repaired. It says, uh, Elishib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and the priests and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. And I, I can't read all this. Um, and then it says, and then, and next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. And it goes on. They built this, and they built this, and they built this, and they repaired this, and they repaired this. Verse 8, next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. So we got goldsmiths that are working in stone, putting up this putting up this wall. And the chapter continues all the way down through that. Verse 15, and Shalom, the son of Kohoza, a ruler of the district of Mizpah repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set his doors and bolts. And he built the wall of the pool of the Shelah, the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. And after him, someone repaired. And after him, someone repaired. And after him, someone repaired. And it goes on and on and on. All of these people, side by side, each having a section, each doing what they were supposed to do and, and rebuilding the wall. You know, when you build a wall, it's only as strong as the weakest length. Weak, weakest link. So if there's a weak spot, a low spot, no one part of the wall is more important than the other part. I hope that makes, you know, some sense. Um, if you're actually battling a city against a wall, what you do is you find the spot that's most advantageous to you if you're attacking it, hopefully the least advantageous for those who are defending it, and you try to make a breach in the wall or a hole in it. And so the whole wall is important. And these people got together and shoulder by shoulder, they built their section, they built that section, and there are some exceptions in here. There were some nobles who wouldn't lift their hand to do anything. He calls them out by name. There were other people who did double. There were other people who paid for stuff out of their own pocket. Because some of these people had, had, had been living in the community. They'd, been, they'd, come, they'd returned with Ezra. And they were there, or they had stayed there 
during the, during the, the 70 year captivity and they were established there that's why it says they were men from Jericho Okay, and they'd, they'd, they'd been there and some of them had resources and they came and they brought their resources and they were all working together with their strength and their resources now I want to shift your attention for just a minute away from that walled city that we have on our map and think about this in a in a in maybe a more spiritual manner because the new testament talks about gifts that we all have gifts and ministries and the apostle when he he actually we'll read some of them here not all of them but he actually says to each of you. Okay? He's writing to those people at Corinth and he says, to each of you. And the, uh, this is not a time to study all of that, but there are gifts and, there's minist- and, and there are ministries. And then, I- interestingly enough, we already talked, we looked at those verses where he says, you know, you guys are a building. So all the, you know, the walls of the building are opposite some foundation stones some walls there's places where there's windows and I get that we can go until that just all you know we stretch that so thin you can see through it doesn't do any good but he also gives us the illustration of a body and he's very particular to explain how none of the members of the body are less important than the other members and vice versa that none are more important than the other members. And then he said you are all members. So everyone who is a believer is a, is a member of this body that makes up what we call the church or this building God is building. All part of it. The Apostle Paul says we're living stones. And he's making up or part of this body each a member. So let me demystify this just a little bit. Everyone in, everyone in here has something for God that God has put in you as an expression of himself to this world. And it's not just about church stuff and church-organized ministries. It's not just about stuff you do here. It's, it, it's it, it, you, everyone in here is, is a member of his body and you're a member of his body 24-7 you don't turn it on or off if you can turn it on or off you ain't got it <laughs> so does that make sense? and we've got, this, we've got this church business all confused we think we go to church to do God stuff we're actually supposed to come to church so we can love one another and get encouraged by one another and encourage one another and so that we can kind of get a little charge so we can go back out and do more God stuff. Absolutely. Again, if you, if you can do it, turn it on or off or do it at will or according to a schedule, then it's not real. Now, we, sometimes we have bad, you know, we have 
we have habits, we have ingrained things. And I, I, but I'll give you an illustration. I, I knew a fella um, who, when he prayed in church, prayed in King James English. You know, so he would say something like, Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that Thou art with us. And thou hast blessed us with, you know, so with these and thous. But when he got done, he'd say, how you doing? (laughs) Okay? So King James only worked when he was praying. He didn't talk, it'd be kind of strange if he talked in King James, wouldn't he? You'd think he came off the front of an oatmeal package or something. (laughs) Do you guys even know what that means? All right, okay, good, all right. Huh? Oh, you knew him personally? All right, yeah, so Don and, Don and that Quaker went to school together. Um, and um, now, now that, guy had been, that guy had been taught to do that. You know, that's, he grew up reading the King James, and that's, just, and that's just what he thought. And that's really not a big deal. But that thought is permeated. In a lot of our activities, we think that when we go to church, we do church stuff. We're Christians at church. Folks, if you're not a Christian 24-7, then you're not a Christian. If you're not a follower of Christ 24-7, then you're not a follower of Christ at all. So further, let me take this a little bit further. Your life is a gift of God to you and to those around you that He wants to use you to minister to when it is submitted to His Lordship. So when, when, when you yield to Him and, and you walk out of here and, and you're yielded to Him tomorrow when you get up or when you go to work or school or wherever it is you're going, running your errands and doing everything, and you're, and you're yielded to Him, you're, your life is a gift to the world around you. You don't need a preacher there. You don't need uh, a, a, a church service there. You don't, you don't need all of these other quote-unquote religious trappings. You are you. You are part of His body. And while you're out there, you're, you're, it, it, figuratively, you're like these people building on the wall. This guy's here and this guy's here. Say, so, well, I'm going someplace. So, yeah, and somebody else is going someplace else. But I see things differently than he does. Yes, and somebody else sees things differently than you do. Well, I didn't think that was funny. Well, somebody else did. You're not perfect. None of us are perfect. And that, what does that do? That makes us stay on our knees before God, saying, Lord, use me this day. Give me mercy. Give that person mercy toward me. Give me favor toward them. Help me be what you want me to be. Let me let me close this. I'm 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 going on. You guys aren't saying amen, and I think you're not hearing. So I'm I'm just. But I'm going to quit anyway. So let's go to First Corinthians chapter three. Let me read some of these verses, and then when I get down to the end of them, I will say amen. And everybody said, "All right." First Corinthians chapter three. Well, Charles thinks it's funny. I, thanks, Charles. I just count on you, buddy. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. 
I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And that is an interesting concept. I did this, he did that. Verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, um, in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians specifically, Paul goes back and forth on whether he's talking about the temple as the entire body of Christ or whether he's talking about the temple as an individual who's got to take care of this thing. But for our purposes, it doesn't really matter. First Corinthians chapter six. We'll read the we'll read the second part, verse nine. No, that's not the right verse. All right, skip it. Second Corinthians chapter six. Let's go there. Verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 21. I guess I'll back up. Built on the foundation, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we looked at this building. We said the big picture is, you know, he's, he's building this city. We're getting this thing ready so that eventually the Messiah can come. And the other picture that I want you to see here, and we'll talk more about it a little bit more next week, is that God's building in us. He's making us to be his temple. And it's not, it's not something that's isolated to this building and your use of him is not isolated to this building. Your life is important when you leave here before God. Your words, your actions, your attitudes are important when you leave here before God. Say, well, I'm not going to do it perfectly. No, you're not. No one is. But you've got to have courage and you've got to keep doing it till the wall is built. And when it's built, there will be a big party 
that right? A big party with the Lord. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And uh, it will be worth it. Heavenly Father, we stand in the midst of a a world that's captive, slaves to others, just like these people in Nehemiah's time were, slaves to the oppressor. We live in the midst of a world, slaves to their oppressor. And we, as believers, indwelled by your Spirit, are here to build something. Not a building you can see, but a building made with a Spirit that can draw those away from their oppression and into liberty and freedom and life and purpose and a relationship with you through your son. Don't ever let us think, Lord, that the little part of the wall that we're building on is insignificant, that our town is small or our contacts are small or our testimony is weak. Where we are weak, Lord, make us strong in you. Where we're unwise, give us wisdom. Where we fail, we ask your forgiveness, heal us, strengthen us, and help us go on. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.